Hello and welcome to A History of the United States, episode 25, Winslow, MD. Remember that this is a listener-supported podcast. If you want to support it, then please consider signing up for membership to get access to our exclusive premium episodes. You can do this by going to the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com, and clicking on the PayPal subscription button. Special thanks to our newest pioneer, listener Rebecca. Thank you. I couldn't do this show without you. As Plymouth Colony entered 1623, things were not looking bright. They had been abandoned by their principal backer, Weston, who was now funding the rival colony of Wessagusset. The creation of this rival had led to a weakening of their negotiating position and to increased hostility with the Indian tribes. They were also struggling to get together a food supply and were paranoid about a possible invasion by the French. They made their way through the winter, struggling and collecting the corn that Bradford had been able to purchase towards the end of the previous year. It was difficult, since Standish, who recovered from the illness he caused in our last episode, was met with numerous attempts on his life. As they entered spring, word came that a Dutch ship was in the region, and the pilgrims were very excited about this. The Dutch and the English were on very friendly terms. The ship happened to be stranded with Massasoit, which represented the perfect opportunity for the English to visit. They had, after all, been on rocky ground with Massasoit ever since the pilgrims refused to hand over Squanto, but he was now dead. It was an Indian tradition to visit a person of power when they were ill, so the pilgrims decided to try and repair the relationship between themselves and Massasoit, and to make contact with the Dutch at the same time, killing two birds with one stone. Winslow would head the expedition, since he had visited Massasoit before, and he was familiar with the Dutch language. He was joined by a man described as a gentleman of London who was visiting the country, one Master John Hampton. We have no way of knowing for sure, but some historians suspect that this John Hampton is THE John Hampton, esteemed parliamentarian and frequent source of trouble for King Charles until his death in 1643. Basically, it would not be difficult to imagine that this is the sort of thing Hampton would do. It would be really odd to allow someone who was just visiting the colony on such an important embassy, unless he were someone of importance, and it's impossible to prove that he was elsewhere at this period of time. The matter will never be resolved, but it's certainly an interesting theory. If you want to know more about John Hampton and the role he will play in the upcoming civil conflict back in England, you have only to check out Mike Duncan's Revolutions podcast. Although, the further I get involved with this project, the more I'm becoming convinced that we'll need to double back and give an overview of just what is going on in Europe for a few episodes at some point down the line, but we'll deal with that when I get to it because adding that into my already hyper-detailed narrative is just going to be opening a whole can of worms. The third member of the expedition party was an Indian, 
Hobomok, who we met last week. They very soon met with difficulties. Once they arrived in Indian territory, they found out that the Dutch ship had sailed away, and that Massasoit had died. Hobomok was very uneasy with this turn of events, and encouraged Winslow and Hampton to leave, because he could not be sure that they would be safe. Winslow didn't agree, though. The man most likely to succeed Massasoit was a chief named Corbitant, who ruled the Pocassets. Winslow wanted to make contact to establish a friendly relationship with him. It was uncertain what sort of reception they would receive. They had previously had conflict with Corbitant before. The other two were hesitant, but eventually they relented and went along with Winslow's plan. They travelled to his home at Matapoist, but found that he was not there. He had gone to see Massasoit. They were instead warmly received by his wife, and a messenger was sent to go find Corbitant. When the messenger returned, he said that while the Dutch had left, Massasoit was very much alive, but would certainly be dead by the time they reached him. They raced there, and found him still alive, miraculously. His sickbed was crowded. If you're dying, suddenly everybody loves you. He was told he had visitors, and he raised his hands into the air, grasping to see if he could find someone, for he had gone blind, and breathed, Keen wind snow, keen wind snow. Translated, Are you Winslow? Are you Winslow? The Indians had some trouble pronouncing certain European sounds, the N, L, and R sounds in particular, which is how we get wind snow from Winslow. Winslow replied, Ahi, yes. Matanin Wonkanet Namen Winslow. I shall never see again Winslow. Winslow at this point had to resort to using a translator, Hobomok, to pass on sympathy from Bradford, and to say that he had brought with him some confection. He placed it on the tip of his knife and fed it to Massasoit. The confection dissolved in his mouth, and he was able to swallow it. The spectators were astounded. It was the first food he had swallowed in two days. Winslow proceeded to clean his mouth, which is described as third, and he scraped some foul matter off his tongue, which does sound pretty gross. We can live with dignity, but we can't die with it. He gave Massasoit some much-needed water, with more confection dissolved in it. Within half an hour, he began to noticeably improve, and not long after, his vision returned. Winslow continued to tend to him while sending a messenger to Plymouth, asking for advice from Dr. Fuller, as well as some medicines and some chickens for a broth. Massasoit's appetite soon returned. He ate some broth and fell into a sleep. When he awoke, he asked Winslow to tend to the sick in his village. It was not only a nice thing for Winslow to do, from a moral point of view, but it also gave him some political goodwill to work with. I am able to write in great detail about this particular incident, since we have Winslow's own account of it. 
I've been summarising, but there really is nothing quite like the primary sources, so I want to include some of the accounts. The next bit is pretty good, so in Winslow's own words, quote, After dinner, he desired me to get him a goose or duck and make him some pottage. Therewith, with as much speed as I could, so I took a man with me and made a shot at a couple of ducks, some six score paces off, and killed one, at which he wondered. So we returned forthwith and dressed it, making more broth therewith, which he much desired. Never did I see a man so low brought recover in that measure in so short a time. The fowl being extraordinary fat, I told Hobbamock I must take off the top thereof, saying it would make him very sick again if he did eat it. This he acquainted Massasoit with, who would not be persuaded to it, though I pressed it very much, showing the strength thereof and the weakness of his stomach, which could not possibly bear it. Notwithstanding, he made a gross meal of it, and ate as much as would well have satisfied a man in health. About an hour after, he began to be very sick, and straining very much, cast up the broth again, and, in overstraining himself, began to bleed at the nose, and so continued the space of four hours. Then they all wished he had been ruled, concluding how he would now die, which we much feared also. They asked me what I thought of him. I answered, his case was desperate, yet it might be would save his life, for, if it ceased in time, he would forthwith sleep and take rest, which was the principal thing he wanted. Not long after, his blood stayed, and he slept at least six or eight hours. When he awaked, I washed his face and bathed and supplied his beard and nose with the linen cloth. But on a sudden, he chopped his nose in the water and drew up some therein, and sent it forth again with such violence as he began to bleed afresh. Then they thought there was no hope, but we perceived it was but the tenderness of his nostril, and therefore told him I thought it would stay presently, as indeed it did. End quote. While 17th century writing can be difficult to understand at times, there is something very poetic about saying that he cast up the broth. Anyway, at this point the messengers returned with the chickens having made a hundred mile round trip in 24 hours, but since Massasoit had mostly recovered, the chickens were kept for breeding. Many had come to visit Massasoit during his illness, but the English had truly won his respect. He saw them now as true friends. The three of them, Winslow, Hampton and Hobbamock, were treated with every honour, and then were sent on their way. There was one more thing. Hobbamock was taken aside before he left by Massasoit, and he passed on a secret message, to be given to Winslow on the journey back, and then to Bradford once he made it back to Plymouth. There was a conspiracy in the works. While they had gotten on just fine with the settlers of Plymouth, the Wessagusset colony was a whole other kettle of fish. They had not gotten on well with the Indians, and so the Indian tribes had decided to terminate them. 
The Massachusetts were the instigators, and by this point, the conspiracy involved the Nausets, the Powmets, the Sukonesets, the Teponsets, the Matakis, the Manomets, the Agawaywams, and those from the Isle of Kapawak, today known as Martha's Vineyard. The initial plan had been to just attack Wessagusset, but it was realised that this would provoke a reaction at Plymouth. So, while none of them had anything against Plymouth, soon the pilgrims would have a problem with them, so they needed to kill the pilgrims first. To this end, they tried to recruit Massasoit to the conspiracy while he was ill, but he would have none of it. It is an insight into Native American political systems that while Massasoit was their king, he was unable to stop his subjects from doing this. Massasoit should not be considered an absolute monarch for the region. He still cared for his people, they were his people, but he couldn't support them in this, which is why he had to warn the pilgrims. As a historian, I'm trained to not believe anything. Everybody lies. It's a basic truth of the human condition that everybody lies. The only variable is about what. While they are richly detailed, the histories of the pilgrims are remarkably unsatisfying. When you want to know the truth about someone, that someone is probably the last person you ask. Everything we know about the pilgrims was written by the pilgrims. Therefore, it shouldn't be remotely surprising that they always appear so faultless in the narrative. This is, though, conjecture. I can speculate, but I can't prove anything, and you should know that. Humility is an important quality, especially if you're wrong a lot. Of course, when you're right, self-doubt doesn't help anybody, does it? So, Massasoit gave advice to the pilgrims. He told them to be active. He heard that they would not attack unless they were attacked, but they couldn't do that. Not this time. They needed to take the initiative. If they waited, the first sign of attack would be the complete destruction of Wessagusset, and then they would be at a huge disadvantage for mounting their own defence. So, what had the Wessagusset colonists done exactly that had provoked such a reaction? You might say, if nobody hates you, you're doing something wrong, but wiping out the English is taking matters to extremes. Let's diagnose this. When we last left Wessagusset, they had received a winter's worth of supplies from Weston, who had sent the pilgrims nothing, by the way. They managed to use it all up by the middle of March, even their seed corn. They began stealing corn from the Indians, and they were punished for this by their own leaders, but the practice became more common. Once they stopped selling corn to Wessagusset, stealing their corn practically became policy. Plymouth disapproved, saying that the Indians were not selling corn because they didn't have enough to spare, not out of some malice. It was expected at that time that a governor would be sent over from England to take command in the region, and Plymouth warned John Sanders, the leader of Wessagusset, that such actions would be punished. 
Sanders is depicted as a good person, even though he was unable to control his colony. A settlement had been constructed with a palisade, but most of them had abandoned it and moved into the forest to scavenge for food. They had sold their clothes to the Indians. So they were wandering around the New England woods, half-naked, with no food. The sources also report that the natives took advantage where they could. This was the situation when Bradford got word of the plot, and that is where we'll end things for this time. If you've enjoyed this episode, remember to check us out online. You can go to the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com, to sign up for membership, look at maps and other such extra features. You can like us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the history of podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at History Jamie. You can send me an email, the history of podcast at gmail.com. I'll see you next time for the thrilling conclusion of the Great Conspiracy. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.